Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It seems we live in a society where everyone wants to be protected. We don't want to hear views we disagree with for fear that it might upset us. We don't want to go back to the office because we get stressed by a commute. We're afraid to let our kids go out and play unless they're supervised. And we're anxious about money, about politics, and about family. It's no wonder that an entire drug industry provides for every anxious moment. We live immersed in first world problems that pale compared to the greatest generation that fought a world war, lived through a depression, and did duck and cover drills for fear of nuclear annihilation. Just maybe, the fault is not in our society, but in ourselves. Maybe instead of trying to eliminate all that might make us anxious, suppose we just got better at dealing with it. Just maybe, coping has less side effects than medication. Maybe we were actually trained to do this as man first stepped out onto the savanna and was chased by lions. He learned very quickly to cope with anxiety, and that coping is probably still buried in our DNA. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. Tracy Dennis Tawari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Hunter College of the City of New York, where she directs the Emotion Regulation Lab and is co founder of the digital therapeutics company Wise Therapeutics. She's published over 100 scientific articles and has appeared in numerous outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, and CBS. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari to talk about her new work, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, what a pleasure to speak with you. Well, it's great to have you here. Why are we so afraid of being afraid? That's a, that is the the key question. And by the way, your intro was so great. I don't even think you need to talk to me anymore. But <laughs> let's, let's let's do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So why are we so afraid of being afraid? I think is you know I think, and this is really the the mystery that as a mental health professional for twenty years I've been struggling with. I've spent my career trying to understand and uh, develop interventions for anxiety disorders, and. We've been making great progress. We've been making progress on the destigmatization of mental illness, um, particularly anxiety disorders and depression. But yet, with tools, with increased access, with all these other things, that the level levels are on the, these disorders are those. You know, anxiety is now the word on everyone's lips. And I think what is happening is that it's really that our fundamental view, the story we tell ourselves about anxiety this this uh, disease story is actually one of the biggest problems. We we fear it because it's uncomfortable. We've come to believe that any uncomfortable feeling is actually dangerous, and so we need to protect ourselves from it. We fear that it's a disease, uh, these uncomfortable feelings, particularly anxiety, that needs to be eradicated and avoided, like COVID or cancer. And we also feel and fear that, that anxiety is a malfunction, that it's this failure of happiness and of mental health. And so we feel like failures. And so these beliefs, these really these false beliefs about anxiety are driving us to do very unhelpful things when it comes to actually coping with uh, anxiety in our lives and these stressors that we face. We avoid these feelings and we suppress them. And that is a recipe for spiraling anxiety out of control. The other thing it seems that it's doing is that it is, it, it is negating the importance sometimes of, of what are serious mental illnesses and what are serious issues of depression because everything gets lumped into the same bowl. I, I couldn't agree with you more, right? We just say, oh, anxious is sort of like the A word now, right? It's like when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was stress. 
stress was put on everything as the uncomfortable feeling. And But now, because we don't use language that distinguishes between anxiety and anxiety disorders, I agree with you. It's it's as if we're we're sort of underestimating the, the suffering that actual anxiety disorders cause. It's kind of how we use the word trauma today, that every uncomfortable experience is called a trauma. Is this generational? Well, I think that there's something that's generational here. But, you know, a, a big part of what's happening now, I think, is what parents um, are also doing and how we, with every best intention, are helping our kids work through difficult feelings. So, you know, there are, uh, there's been a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't think I'll be saying anything new to point out that there's been a lot of discussion around uh, parental snow plowing, right? This idea, not just a helicopter parent, but now the forcible removal of every obstacle or discomfort or, or you know, a challenge that is in the way of our offspring. And so now parents are really um, not allowing their kids uh, in many ways to contend and actually rise to the occasion of the challenges they face. And it's an opportunity cost because the emotional, you know, our emotions are not, you know, we're not fragile when it comes to our emotions. We're actually anti-fragile. I, I draw on the concept that, uh, that Nassim Nicholas Taleb really coined, this notion of anti-fragility that we actually gain from being challenged emotionally, like the immune system. When, you know, it's only by throwing viruses and bacteria and germs at our immune system that it learns to function, that it can actually mount an immune response. And our emotions are the same. And our emotions are these waves that drive us through life. And you can drown in waves, um, but you can also learn to ride them forward. You can build those skills and you can learn to surf. And you can, you know, so we need to ride these waves of emotion and believe that we can do it and teach our kids the same, that we can have that mastery. When did we come to this idea that our kids should grow up without any obstacles, that somehow all of this anxiousness was somehow bad, that, that parents did need to do this, this snow plowing, as you say. How did we get to that? I think there are a couple of forces at play. You know, one is, you know, and I can remember this very vividly growing up, you know, the advent of fear around, you know, child abduction and the milk carton kids. And this notion that was actually uh, really an inaccurate representation of the real risk, but it was so salient to us when, you know, there seemed to be all these kids missing all of a sudden. And these mostly false, you know, accusations of, you know, cults and, you know, child kidnappers. And so I think there was this fear that it started to infiltrate uh, parents' minds uh, in the 70s and 80s. Kids were at that time uh, not allowed to roam as freely anymore. And there were, you know, forces like that were, were shaping children's own freedom. Um, and then I think, I think it was also, again, with the best of intentions, I think that we mental health professionals have promulgated a disease narrative of difficult emotions and difficult experiences such that now what, what I think we're more often thought of as normal emotional challenges as, you know, part and parcel of being human, to be anxious sometimes, to feel depressed sometimes, to struggle. This, this, these aspects of our messy humanity that we used to accept, we now thought, wait a second, the world is more dangerous and our kids' emotional lives are more dangerous. And so I think that we started to figure that, that what we needed to do was really be protective and to surround our kids and wrap around our kids at every level. It seems that, that lately we have 
escalated this even more, that we've actually gone from anxious, which is, is bad enough in the context that we're talking about it, to, as you mentioned, to everything is trauma. Yeah. I mean, that it goes hand in hand. And I do want to say something about anxiety that I think that I think is really crucial here. And it's really the reason I wrote the book, which is that, you know, before we can actually engage in what I think is an active, proactive pursuit of mental health, it's not a black and white proposition. You know, it's not you. You have it or you don't. It's more like physical fitness. I think we pursue before we can pursue mental health. We need to understand that the key to being emotionally healthy is actually knowing how to feel bad, how to feel badly, how to feel anxious, how to feel strong feelings that are negative. The, mental health is not the absence of anxiety. It's knowing that we can use anxiety in useful ways because anxiety makes us into these time travelers into the future where we can think about and plan for the future. It activates us. It prepares us not just for for protection, but for productivity, right? And so we need to understand when we can use anxiety this way, but also gain the wisdom and skill of knowing when it's not as useful, right? And that we need to seek extra support. And here's the crucial part. And to be curious enough about anxiety, not frightened of it, not, you know, not demonizing it, curious enough about it that we can start to learn the difference between the useful and the not useful anxiety. And I think it's an it's a attitude of openness and curiosity that we have largely lost and that we can regain. But it's really crucial that we have these conversations. It, it's so interesting that you talk about curiosity because it's not just the lack of curiosity about anxiety and, and what that means. That because, as you talk about in the book, that, that anxiousness is somehow tied to how we view the future and are concerned about the future, that being afraid of anxiety is antithetical to curiosity. Oh, beautifully put. I agree entirely. And that's really why I called the book Future Tense, because it's so fundamental to what anxiety is. Because although anxiety feels like fear, fear is something that roots us to the present moment. You know, dealing with the, the someone holding a knife to your throat or a knife, a snake about to bite you. But, 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 Anxiety is this beautiful, in, in some ways, I believe it's, it's a terrible emotion too, but it's this amazing emotion because it sends us into the future where something bad could happen. It hasn't happened yet because something good could happen instead. And anxiety keeps us believing that we have the power to make that good outcome into reality. And it helps us prepare for that biologically, not just through fight flight, but through increasing our levels of dopamine which is not just a feel-good hormone, but the hormone that drives us to pursue positive goals. It helps us pursue positive outcomes by spiking levels of oxytocin, the social bonding hormone, which makes us and primes us to seek out social support. It does these amazing things that help us, that we ignore, and so we're losing the opportunity to find out when anxiety can serve us in this way, like an ally that, yes, we need to negotiate with that ally. <laughs> it's not an easy ally. But it's but there's we can negotiate with ally this ally anxiety to help us. What is the cost? I mean, there's no answer to this, but but talk about what is the cost to society if if we try and tamp that down? If if we are constantly dis discouraging this looking out into the future, I, I think the cost is massive. I think the cost can be seen already in this discrepancy between the excellent tools we have to help reduce anxiety disorders and problems with anxiety and the actual rates continuing to soar. It just, there's a, there's a disconnect there because we have the tools, 
right? So, so why aren't they working? And I think it's because we, we, we're rejecting this aspect of anxiety that would allow us to benefit from these tools. I think that's one aspect of the cost. I think the cost is actually also hitting us on a societal level. I think that polarization, political and otherwise, that is happening right now is driven by our rejection of difficult emotions and difficult conversations. You know, this notion of safe spaces is a very interesting one because it's actually antithetical to the original safe spaces that Kurt Lewin created post-World War II. He created them to be spaces of raw emotional discussion to tackle prejudice in all its forms head-on and to make ourselves vulnerable to our weaknesses, our you know, our biases to say, I'm, I, I am a boss and I believe that the uh, you know, the men who work for me are not as smart as I am, you know, and and I admit to that bias. I don't agree with it. I want to work on it. And knowing that these, quote unquote, safe spaces, we could have these difficult conversations and I would be part of change instead of being canceled, honestly, and canceling wasn't a word back then. But so so these spaces were raw and challenging and they yielded real positive benefit. And I feel like um, on a societal level. We're taking away opportunities for those truly nuanced, difficult discussions that could actually move us forward to helping, you know, to actually meeting many of these, uh, uh, both social justice and other kinds of goals that mean so much to us. The corollary of that, which you talk about, is the way in which it is the, the nexus between anxiety and creativity. Mm. I, 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 you know, that's a connection that I love because not only is there great evidence for it, <laughs> but it's one that we don't think of. And it's, again, it's a story of anxiety where how could it possibly help us with creativity? Doesn't it destroy creativity? But, but if you actually speak to creative people, they'll tell you that if, it, you know, if they weren't vomiting in the bathroom <laughs> before their big performance, they would actually wonder if something was wrong because they know and have learned to channel that this anxiety is telling them, they really care about what's about to happen. They're really preparing their body and their mind to perform at their peak. There was a great study that um, came out of um, Harvard in 2013, Jameson and colleagues, where they taught socially anxious people to think differently about their anxiety before performing, um, in this case, um, um, performing an, uh, an impromptu speech in front of a panel of judges. And when they taught uh, those, those folks who were already very anxious their bodily responses as something that would prepare them to perform well that you know your heart racing and you're sweating that's your that's your heart pumping blood and oxygen to your brain so you're ready to really do the speech really well when they were taught that they did perform better and their heart rates were lower during the performance their cardiovascular profiles were those of someone who was ready and prepared to rise to the occasion and i think creative people and performers they've mastered that same trick of knowing that their feelings of anxiety are not dangerous, uh, uh, danger signals necessarily, but they're signals that they're in it to win it. Because try, by, by trying to suppress it, we're going against evolution, essentially. It's an opportunity cost. You can ne never learn to work with anxiety if you're always going around it. And creativity and anxiety, I mean, remember, they kind of inhabit the same space. Anxiety is apprehension about the uncertain future. So it's a discrepancy between where we are now and where we want to be. It's possibility. It's all about future possibility. That's, and so is creativity, right? It inhabits the space between what's now in our reality and what's possible to be. And hope inhabits that space. Striving inhabits that space. So I'd like us to think of and consider that anxiety might be akin 
to these other powerful human experiences, creativity, striving, and, and hope, as much if not more so than it is similar to fear. And in that sense, it is a very human emotion. I mean, it's one of the things that makes us human, this ability to project into the future. It's a triumph of human evolution. I mean, it is the, (laughs) it's like right up there with the opposable thumb, you know. It's what allows us to imagine in exquisite detail what could happen, to plan for it. I mean, I think if we didn't have that capacity, we'd still be living in caves. We would never build civilization. And anxieties are helpmate in that. So, so yes, you know, I really do want to also say anxiety is painful. It is a terrible emotion in many senses and for many people. But we can, we can do it. We can be anxious in the right way. Kierkegaard said over 180 years ago, um, uh, he, you know, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. And so, you know, anxiety is a feature of being human. It's not a bug. It's not a malfunction. And I think when we start thinking about how that might play out in our lives and, and being open to that possibility, we will be best able, able to work with our anxiety and really um, and manage it and use it to our advantage. To what extent is the, the fact that our society is so sped up in so many ways, how does that play into this, do you think? That's a great question because, you know, in, in many ways that's adding to our feelings of uncertainty, right? It's like, we, you know, all these new things that are being thrown at us all the time, you know, information, you know, what's truth, what's, what's, what's fact and what's, you know, uh, fiction, all of this sheer speed and complexity of our lives. Many people will say, well, hey, of course we're all anxious and of course this means it's a bad thing. But I would argue that in our sped up lives, anxiety is exactly what we've evolved to have to help us manage that uncertainty. Because it, if we have any chance at coping with this wacky world that we're in, and by any measures it is wacky, um, you know, anxiety is going to help us in that. It will prepare us. If we can listen to what it's telling us, we'll be better able to use it, uh, to motivate, to, you know, to, to focus, to persist. Anxiety is an w- incredible asset when it comes to persisting, to problem solving. Um, there's this I, there's this notion of excellenceism. It's actually sort of the light side of the dark side of, of perfectionism, which is this you know punishing standards of flawlessness. Well, excellenceism is the pursuit of what it sounds like excellence, but it's this appreciation that we need to strive, we need to work towards something excellent, and we're going to fail along the way. We're going to make mistakes. Uh, uh, you know, Thomas Edison was a perfect example of a, uh, excellenceist. He said. Um, I have not failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that haven't worked yet. <laughs> so, so I think that as we deal with the speed of life, with the uncertainty of life, we can use our feelings of anxiety, our drive. We can take the warning signals, sometimes take a break from anxiety when we need to. But the very first step we need to take is to listen to it, to tune into it instead of suppressing and dulling and rejecting it. It's larger than that in the sense that there is also pushback, not just to the idea of anxiety and, and this fear that everything's a trauma, but there's even pushback in society today to the striving for excellence. I see what you mean. That's interesting. I mean, I live in Manhattan, so we're all a little on the other side of the spectrum. You know, this makes me think of parent, like how hard it is to be a parent today. Because, you know, when I was growing up, listen, I'm a Gen Xer and we didn't really believe in the American dream, but we sort of did, right? We thought that if we worked hard, there would be possibilities for us. But we were also really, you know, kind of uh, ironic about the whole thing. But we we still felt that there was something to work towards um, and believe in. And I think right now with um, 
you know, there's a lot of loss of faith in institutions. There's a lot of loss of, of faith in future possibilities. And I think it's really hard for young kids on that level today. But I also think they're amazing. I think they've been dealt a pretty rough deck of, you know, in terms of things to deal with in life. But these are kids who are also questioning things. They're, they're trying to think outside the box. You know, they're, there, there is this feeling of, of emotional safetyism that a lot of people have talked about that I think some of this generation have started to suffer from, but a lot of them are questioning that. They're pushing back against it. They're saying, you know, we grew up in these social media bubbles where we were expected to make ourselves into a brand, to sell ourselves, you know, and, and, and what a destructive thing for a developing self to have to hold themselves to. But they're pushing back on it. And I think that many are going to get through these all these hurdles that we older people have thrown in their way in terms of the world we've created. And I think they're going to, going to come out powerful on the other side. I think they're going to come out not accepting mediocrity and maybe even redefining what excellence means to them. So I do, I, I do have a lot of hope at the same time that I see that um, we're, we're very uncertain about how to deal with challenges in life because we feel so um, burdened. Is there a, def- a line that that might evolve to define the point at which simple anxiety, the kind of anxiety we've been talking about in all of these areas, crosses over into something more serious. This is very important because I do really want to make a clear distinction between anxiety and anxiety disorders. And I think part of the problem is we don't make that distinction. Anxiety is, you know, the spectrum of uh, of feelings uh, that we call anxiety that are like a dimmer switch, right? They can, it kind of, it's along the spectrum, everything from just butterflies in the stomach and excitement to full out panic. But that is still the emotion of anxiety. You can be highly anxious frequently and still not be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder because those are only diagnosed when the ways that we cope with feelings of anxiety are getting in the way of living a full life. So that if we're socially anxious and we, it's not just that we're anxious about being judged by others or performing in front of people. It's that we're so debilitated by that, those fears, that we start to not going to work. We start to refuse doing interviews with interesting journalists. We start to, you know, we start to, we start to avoid and suppress instead of engage and work through. And so that our ways of coping are actually getting in the way of living a full life. And it, they, always inadvertently spiral anxiety into even higher levels that then become debilitating. So the crisis is not having too much anxiety. It's that the ways we're coping with it are not working. Are there skills or should we be, be focusing on skills almost in, in school to, to develop a better sense of this? That is definitely where we should be having this education happen. And that doesn't mean that um, you know, I think there's so many divisions politically and otherwise about views about how we're educating our kids. I think this is very simple in, in some ways. It's it's simply the education that emotions are a normal part of human life. They are hard, but we can do hard things. Um, they feel uncomfortable, but sometimes they need to because they need us to sit up and pay attention because they're information. I think in some ways we need to educate our kids to be little emotion scientists to understand that, 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 again, uh, emotions are part and parcel. Even our very difficult ones are part and parcel of being human. And then you can have those discussions. You know, I think a lot of kids feel that adults are constantly telling them, oh, you're anxious, so we have to deal with that right away. We have to make it go away. And adults have to stop doing that to kids because kids know better. 
do you actually talk to kids, which I love to do because I'm also a developmental psychologist. They know this. I, you know, I talked to a group of middle schoolers a, a year or two back, and they were talking about mental health in the schools, and they wanted to advocate for more support. And one thing they said to me is they said, you know, adults act like they can just take away our anxiety, like almost like a, a, a rotten tooth, <laughs> you know, like to extract it out. And, they, and one young woman said to me, she, they said, she said, you know, can they? And then she said, should they? <laughs> My answer was no and no. And so kids are ready and primed to have these more challenging conversations. And teachers are ready to. I just got an email today from a teacher out on the West Coast who just said, I'm really trying to work with my kids, letting them know that anxiety is okay, that, that they can tune into it and they can listen to it and work with it. They're so, they've learned to be so afraid of their anxiety, and this is the thing that's getting in the way. So I think educators are also ready to have these conversations. What kind of pushback have you gotten to to the book and and to the ideas we've been talking about. You know, I'm 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 I expect there to be quite a bit. I haven't gotten a ton yet, <laughs> but um, and hopefully I'm just trying to communicate carefully. But some I think some of the um, pushback that I'm just starting to see is um, if I'm not clear in the distinction that I'm making between anxiety and an anxiety disorder, because I really do want to acknowledge that anxiety disorders are disorders. And they cause immense suffering, and we need to offer treatment and support. I think that's that's one point. But but I think I think people get this distinction. I think they are tired of thinking that all anxiety is a disorder. I think medication is another place where I get some pushback on. And again, to be really clear on my stance on medication, if you have an anxiety disorder, temporary use of medication is clinically validated when it's in combination with behavioral therapy to be a really great approach. Some people need it to benefit from other therapies. It's like, you know, and medication is sort of like giving someone a fish so they can eat for a day, whereas cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know, is teaching someone to fish so they can have the skills over a lifetime. So I, I want to say that very clearly. At the same time, in this country, we have a serious problem with the over-prescription of benzodiazepines, the main anti-anxiety meds. They're dangerous, and we don't educate people about that enough. People use them casually to suppress just even mild or kind of within a normal range of experiences of anxiety. So, so what happens over time is that's going to actually um, boomerang and probably lead to longer uh, experience, kind of more enduring and intense anxiety over time. So I think we are not talking about and using medications in the right way. And I think, and also I'm very concerned about overdoses that are happening, especially in young people. I actually have a whole section on that in my book about um, deaths uh, due to overdoses of benzodiazepines, especially when they're combined with, uh, with painkillers or, or alcohol. And so I think we just need to be much more aware of the right way to use these medications and to way tamp down and, and pull back on overusing them. How much of drug use today, and I don't mean pharmaceuticals, but, but drug use outside of pharmaceuticals, is a way of, of self-medicating a fear of anxiety when it shouldn't be. I think it's always, yes. I think that it's always been, in some sense, that we've used substances right, to manage those uncomfortable feelings, especially anxiety, because it's some uncertainty. And uncertainty is a very, even though it's the human condition, it's very painful because you know we have to manage it. We have to sit up and pay attention. And I think what's happened now because of our conversations about difficult emotions, this idea that emotions can harm us, which is not true, um, I think that we're doing it even more. I think we also have these giant escape machines in the palm of our hands um, called um, mobile devices. 
And so now we also have habitually started escaping uncomfortable feelings because it's so easy to, and even if it's just boredom, even, you know, we don't allow ourselves to sit with experiences because we are primed um, to lose ourselves in devices because of how they're designed. And again, I don't like to lay the blame for everything at the foot of one cause. And I don't think digital technology causes all our, our ills, but I think it's an amplifier um, of many of these tendencies. So I think that um, that's one conversation we should also have when it comes to um, um, substances, to drugs, and to technology. How can we use it? You know, we're going to use it. They're not going to go away. But how can we use it a little bit less to escape from difficult experiences and feelings that actually we could benefit from exploring a little bit more? Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. Her book is Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. Tracy, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.